You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Welcome everyone. So this is Chris McIntosh here. I've got a conversation that I recorded with one Ahmed Tabakchali, who is the CIO of the Iraqi AFC fund. So some of the long-term listeners and readers might remember my buddy Thomas Hoga. Thomas runs AFC and one of the actual funds within that structure is the Iraqi fund. Um, I wanted to try and get a better understanding as to what, what what was going on in Iraq as well as the sort of geopolitical environment in the Middle East region. And I couldn't think of anybody better to talk to than somebody who's on the ground investing in Iraq, which um, uh, which I did. And I recorded the conversation. So hopefully it'll be valuable for you and I hope you enjoy it. We just dive right in as I hit record on the, on the conversation I had with Ahmed. How is it that you are sitting today, even though you're in London, but managing a fund in Iraq. Yeah, okay, well that, that, that is actually quite uh, excellent, so the way it started. Now, briefly, uh, I'm Iraqi national. Uh, however, I have lived a great part of my life overseas. My father was a career diplomat. And so, although having spent a lot of time in Iraq, I sort of spent everywhere, to give you an idea, I uh, finished my high school in Algiers, I got my A-levels in London, I got my first two degrees in New Zealand, and then I came to England and I got my master's uh, in Oxford of Mathematics, so in training I'm a mathematician. Uh, I started life as a US equities broker based in London, and I was purely and solely focused on US equities. So my role was a US institutional broker servicing uh, the European uh, institutions uh, and selling them US products. So I worked at places like Dean Witter, uh, then I was with Jeffries International, then I was with uh, what's now called KeyBank, which is the broken arm or the investment banking arm of KeyBank in the US. And finally, I worked with uh, WR Hambrecht uh, because a lot of what I did for a while, uh, I was quite keen on technology. Now, in my life as a broker, I sort of worked with pretty much across the spectrum of um, U.S. managers, so from large cap to mid cap to small cap and to micro cap. And the small cap, micro cap is extremely relevant to what I'm doing right now. In 2008, um, I started looking, or 2005, on a personal level, I started looking at the Middle East because I was only focused on the U.S. And I started looking, I was looking at other stuff like metals, uh, commodities, and so forth, and, you know, other industries as well, but I was mostly in the U.S. Now, um, I started noticing the Middle East in 2005 and had a look at it. I uh, spent a year consulting in Dubai in 2007, and that's when I started looking at the Middle East from, from the, the perspective of a Western investor. At the time, uh, the investors in Dubai, you're talking 2006, you know, I went late 2005, 2006, there were very, very few investments in Dubai. And Dubai or the UAE was the, the easy vehicle for the Middle East. But people were just discovering what the Middle East was. And that was, in, in a way, very closely linked to Iraq because a lot of the risk premium of the Middle East had gone away 
with the uh, 2003 event in Iraq, whether you call it liberation or whether you call it invasion, one way or the other, the removal of Saddam Hussein had pretty much removed, let's say, the risk premium on the Middle East. Uh, the region sort of, you know, sort of had one of the most amazing bull markets starting in 2004, I think, and sort of like pretty much crashed in 2006. But there is, I went there with an eye of looking at how to, um, you know, how to sort of like bring my experience relevantly in a way, open the markets to, to uh, European investors, to national investors, because that's really what, what I know. So one thing that I discovered was, for example, indices in the region are completely meaningless, i.e. you cannot create an index whereby it can be tracked. You can't, create an, you know, you can't have an index whereby you can actually create a portfolio that can track it. So one of the things I started working on is index creation. And I was working on the idea of creating ETS for the region. Eventually, I gave up on that uh, process because uh, one of the difficulties thing in creating an ETF is the overall um, space around the ETF because the ETF is an ecosystem. It's not, not just an ETF. It's ETF, it's a component, it's an industry. Uh, and now the, the, the nature of frontier markets pretty much precludes, especially the Middle East, precludes of creating ETF primarily for three reasons. One, shorting was not available. So there's no way you can actually close the gap between the, let's say, the ETF and its index. That's one. Two, spreads between stocks are quite large in the sense that you really cannot create a basket. No, even if you, I mean, I created an index that was more relevant, let's say, to volume, because one of the things you discover in the Middle East is that large cap stocks are not necessarily the most liquid ones. It's actually depending on how much of it is publicly available for investment. So I created one which is market cap, but also relevant to volume, because my idea was that if you create an ETF and you have a fund, you have to have be able to invest in a reasonable amount in the stock without actually one day trading, killing the stock one way or the other. But so that was that. And finally, the idea was that, you know, you really can't make it. You can't, you can't make it because the spreads are too wide. And so therefore, the whole idea of creating an ETF that works didn't really uh, succeed. But it gave me really in, uh, an insight into the area. Now, subsequent to that, I was hired by the uh, by NBK Capital by NBK Capital to run their brokerage operations along Western lines. Now, the interesting thing is when when uh, I was being um, interviewed, one of the things that I was you know I don't know if people know the, the history of the area, but Iraq invaded Kuwait. And even though I was thrilled that I was like behind, because NBK is the highest uh, quality bank in the region. It's, 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 it's a private bank as opposed to a, a bank owned by the state. So it's actually owned by individuals. And it's the largest. It's, I mean, it's, it's a bank that really stands head and shoulders above, above many other institutions. But being Kuwaiti, I was like, one of the things I asked them, I said, you guys are sure that, um, you know, you're talking to me for a headhunter by all means, but you know, I'm Iraqi, right? And the CEO at the time laughed and he goes, yeah, 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 we know that you're Iraqi. Uh, one, it's not an issue, uh, but two is that we had just bought a bank in Iraq and one day we want to get involved in the bank. So what happened was, uh, you know, I spent five years working and, 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 and you know, I was looking at, at Kuwait and GCC and as well as the bank's operation in Egypt. And so I developed over the five year period sort of like real knowledge of how uh, these markets work. But also, to me, they were very similar to small cap and micro cap in the US in terms of their trading. You know, the, the spreads, the, 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 you know, the lack of, of you know, the, the response of the stock between its earnings announcement and the price move. It's, it's a typical illiquid stock and you find it all the time in frontier markets. Now, an experience with 
small cap and micro cap and big S gives you an enormous uh, ability to understand those. Plus also the other factor is that the region is dominated by retail investors. I worked all my life with institutional investors. And so over these years, I got to understand these, the mentality very well and so forth. Now fast forward to 2012, when I was invited to sit on the board of that particular bank, and I found myself drawn more and more into Iraq. So that's how it's, I started looking at Iraq. Now, one event that, that really sort of, uh, I was very excited to participate in was at the time in 2012 and 2013, well, 20, the clock started in 2012, but I, I started looking at it in 2013, was Iraq in 2007 had auctioned its uh, mobile uh, uh, spectrum to, to a number of companies and three companies won the licenses to operate in Iraq. One of the mandate, well, you know, one of the requirement of being granted the GSM license was the fact that these companies in X number of years, with this X number of years coincides with 2012, 2013, they had to list a certain percentage of their stock in, on the Iraqi stock exchange. Now, while that was a very exciting idea and typical you know, uh, idea of like, you, know, you want to encourage your market, it was, it was non-practical because Iraq's market cap at the time was about $4 billion. And each of those companies' valuations at that time would have been $4 billion. And an IPO of at least 25%, you're talking $1 billion. Now, that's a massive, massive undertaking. The first one took place relatively easily uh, because it was mostly subscribed for by its Qatari owner. The second one, which is the one which the bank I worked for was getting involved with, and that was my entry into Iraq. Because what I started doing was I started looking at, at trying to see who would buy, you know, who would buy $1.2 billion of, 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 of a company. Now, in Iraq, it's all retail and you really can't count on that. So I started looking at frontier managers who would possibly look at buying into that IPO. Now, my whole sort of time working on the IPO, the IPO didn't take place, but my involvement was very much high in that because I started seeing a large number of frontier managers, some emerging market managers, but mostly frontier managers, who had looked at Iraq seriously. Now, whether they looked at it in terms of like, yes, this is something we'll look at in four or five years' time, or some actually had sent analysts to go and look into Iraq and begin to look at companies. Now, throughout my career from 1990 onwards, I saw the same kind of thing happen when people started looking at uh, emerging markets. I remember sort of like India in the early 1990s. Uh, after that, China and, and, and the Far East and so forth. And I saw the same thing happening place, taking place in Iraq. I knew that these guys in five, seven, maybe eight years time, that they would be coming to Iraq. At that time, while I was working in Iraq, I met uh, Thomas's partners, you know, Thomas's uh, colleague who was actually attending a, re a research conference. So fast forward to uh, the, the ISIS invasion. When I saw ISIS take place, the whole thing take place, to me, it crystallized the whole idea that I should be looking at launching a fund as soon as possible. Because as odd as it might seem to invest when that thing happening, my thinking was one of the things that, that put the area in continuous uh, battle or continuous like risk state was that all these proxy wars taking place between Iran and the US, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. Now, ISIS and ISIS's uh, ideology 
is a danger to everyone, irrespective of whether, you know, you, you can, you know, otherwise you subscribe to conspiracy theories of saying, oh, this, these guys promoted or that guy, doesn't matter. The whole ISIS idea or the radicalism of it is a danger to everybody. And to my mind was, it was quite clear that there would be a realignment of interest. Because the thing which unites, you know, what causes ISIS happening in a way is pretty much the same thing that if you look at it in a way, you might, you might say, it's like if you really generalize it, but you, you pick up the main points, it's the same thing that, that created, for example, uh, the conditions for Brexit in the UK or the, 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 the emergence right. of Trump. It's basically in the Middle East, what you have is you have a large young population that is below the poverty line, especially looking at countries like Egypt, Iraq, and Iran, whereby the majority of the population, and we're talking 55% plus, are under the age of 25. Now, that and the socioeconomic differences that exist between the well-off and the non-well-off creates a condition whereby the, 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 the masses have nowhere to go. You know, no upward mobility, no chance to take part in that. Plus, the, most of the regimes in the region are dictatorships, and with the dictatorship, you get the hypocrisy, or what's the right word, whereby, you know, the regime and the regime's uh, friends and family. Nipotism, that's it, nipotism. And so for the, for the majority of the population, they have no chance of getting somewhere. Now, in this kind of environment where poverty sort of is thing, and there is no hope, extremism is always find fertile grounds. Whether it's religious extremism, whether it's what we're seeing in the U.S., you know, the things that the anger that led to that, that's the same thing that's created. And that is a danger. And while there are wars and proxy wars for dominance, that was a risk. So in my mind was, holy, you know, holy thing. I, mean, I, was, talking, I was talking to Thomas. I said, look, in a year, two years time, Iran will make peace with the, uh, with the U.S. Part of its peace would be reintegrating into the, into the whole thing. And fast forward, this is exactly what happened. So that's how I got to looking at Iraq and how, you know, the whole involvement started. Right. Because I sort of like give, give the big picture and then we can go into yeah, no, detail. That's, that's, that's great. So if you think, so, so what you're suggesting then, first and foremost, Iraq would be a conflict strategy. Yeah. In that you're looking at it and you're saying you've got, uh, you know, the good old, uh, you know, blow when, blow when blood is running in the streets. In Absolutely. And so there's that. Um, what I, okay, and then if we dig sort of deeper into it, one of the things that seems prevalent to me, and this is true not just of Iraq, but it's true of many of the Gulf member states, and you mentioned that there's this, um, there's dictatorships, there's, um, there's essentially these ruling parties. And if you drive down into the economics of it, they have enormous control insofar as the government tends to be the majority um, employer mm -hmm. in Absolutely. countries. Um, and the main resource has been energy, whether it's mm -hmm. essentially hydrocarbons. And so if you look at, you know, you mentioned an ETF, if you, if you were to create an ETF in Iraq, I suspect it would look very similar to that of ETFs that are in, you know, member Gulf states, insofar as it's going to track largely. I don't know exactly what the correlations are, but it's going to track energy prices. I would I'll give some more details, but you know, because it's actually a lot more granular than that. But but let's let's take it for that and go on. Then I then I can. So, so given 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 that scenario, you've got a conflict situation. 
whereby presumably risk premium is extremely high. Mm-hmm. It should be cheap when, when we can dig into how cheap it, mm-hmm. it actually is. But then secondly, you've got these trends or these tailwinds, and that's really around energy. So in order to understand uh, Iraq or any of the member states, uh, presumably you need to have a view on energy. So yes. um, what can you deal with those two? One, your view on energy, and two, this overall structure whereby your gov- the government, you know, even when you look into these things, even if you've got, for example, um, you know, a sector that could be consumer, uh, consumer goods or whatever it is, for the most part, that's like a secondary or a tertiary um, flow on from the government sector, which is pretty much energy dependent mm. often because that's where the, the, the main mm-hmm. source of funds comes in. And then you've got these sort of tertiary things. So as a consequence, if you have a, a significant um, pressures on the energy sector, it's difficult to get um, you know, upside in any of the other sectors because you can have that flow through capital. Consequently, on the other side, even the smallest uptick from a low base can provide enormous asymmetry to not just energy, but to any of those other sectors. Because as soon as you have, if you've got, for example, a base level income, um, that, and let's just take, let's just pick a number, 10,000 bucks a year. Yeah. And anything post $10,000 a year can have an incremental effect on consumer price, on, on, on consumer goods spending. It's very much like what you said in, your, in one of your um, emails when you had the example of the balloons underwater. Yeah. You know, when, when, when you bring it down and as soon as you let go, boom, it's very much asymmetry exactly. in terms of... Because that's start, exactly it, yeah. let's say you've got $10,000 and you're not spending anything on... Uh, that's your base goods. Now you earn $11,000. So you're going from zero... It's not just like saying from 10,000 to 11. You're actually going in terms of additional spend on consumer goods. You're going from zero to $1,000 a year. Absolutely. And that, that has enormous um, up, upswing in, you know, whether it be cell phones or, um, you know, um, Prada shoes or whatever it happens to be. So Absolutely. The way I, I would say in a sense is that, forgive me, the answer is going to be, First of all, general, then I'm going to go be specific. Now, the thing is, the, the comments you've made on the region are correct, but I, I need to sort of, because Iraq is, satisfies some of the comments that you think, but also it has its own unique challenges. Now, when people look at the Middle East, they think oil. Now, what they've got to think about is true, but the Middle East actually, I would classify it into basically three kind of regions. On the, on the one end, extreme end, you have places like Egypt, let's say, which is an enormously large country, large population. It's an agricultural society initially, but it's resource poor. And so therefore, it, it, it depends, a lot of, a lot of its, its, its income depends on, let's say, tourism. A lot of it depends on uh, funds sent by its own people, you know, who work in overseas. Exactly. And then on the, on the other end, which is when, what people most of the time think of the Middle East, is they think of the GCC. Now, the GCC are a very unique uh, case because on the one hand, you have extremely tiny populations. I mean, the largest is Saudi Arabia at 30 million or thereabouts. But every other place, you're talking a few million, you know, like places like Qatar. The Qataris are probably, if I, you know, I need to check my numbers, but they are, they are in the, in the 300,000 uh, number figure. 
in the UAE, the probably the, the, the Emiratis altogether is about, oh, I need to check my figures, but probably I would say a million or two million, let's say. I, I, my data is, is, is I need to, to, to check that there. But they're, they're talking tiny population and incredible mineral wealth. Now, these populations, most of the time, because the, the, the area has been a desert, so basically you have oases where people had lived in a sense. And over the last few years, they've exploded in terms of the upside. Now, their economies are, depending on which of them and what percentage, are a lot of it are expats. Expats provide the work and stuff and all that kind of stuff. But basically, they're incredibly well off. And then you have places like Iraq and Iran, which straddle the two. They have extreme hydrocarbon wealth, but they also have agricultural society, and they have uh, they share a little thing with Egypt as a large population. Iraq is 30, 38 million. Uh, Iran is 90 million or, or 87 million people. So you have that. Now, the one thing that drives all of them, and let's come to the GCC because that's where Iraq's similarities with the GCC is, is that, yes, the government, one way or the other, is a predominant player in the economy. Even the most diversified ones, you have the, even the non-oil sector in, in these places is pretty much driven by the oil sector in the sense that government orders, i.e. when the government is building up, uh, let's say, uh, the cities or infrastructure, its orders drive the other industries. And so therefore, when you look at, oh, and let me add something else as well. One of the things that, that happens is the governments are the largest employer in the land. So it's one way of transferring oil wealth in the sense of, you know, it's, it's one way for the population to benefit from the old world is that they get sort of like easy, cushy, wonderful government jobs. Now, what happens, that creates a bureaucracy, but also that creates a dependence on oil. So consumer spending, yes, it depends on oil and government, but it's almost guaranteed because in a sense, jobs are guaranteed by the government. Until very recently, by the way, when they have to take some difficult choices. The other thing is that you'll notice is that the economy is not represented in the stock market. So very few of them, if any at all, have oil companies in their, in their exchanges. So the exchanges are mostly either banking or banking and real estate and, and, and telecom, obviously. Telecom is, is a big player, all of them, plus other stuff. But nevertheless, the point that you made about dependence on oil is very valid because ultimately, it's the government spending, which is related to oil, what drives other industries. Yeah. So yes when oil prices do change effect. Now, that's on one hand, and I'll give you my view on oil, uh, which is, 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 is separate, but let's put Iraq in a sense. Iraq, where Iraq differs from all of these, and really where the opportunity is, is super magnified in my mind, is that Iraq has been in a state of conflict one way or the other for the last 35 years. Now, people who know the region, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's very difficult to think of Iraq as anything uh, as, you know, we know Iraq as people know Iraq as Mesopotamia, but very people remember Iraq's modern history. Iraq, you know, it, until the 70s was a very different country than, than we see right now. It was uh, developed because you had the rivers, you had ancient civilization, and you had a, a, an educated population. So when oil came in, it wasn't the driver of the economy. The economy had other sectors, had, had you know, Iraq was the largest exporter of dates. I mean, figures vary, but between 40 and 60% of world date used to come from Iraq. Interesting. I don't know then. To give it that, that, that thing is, Iraq was completely independent um, in agriculture. Because you know, if you go back to Mesopotamia, the rivers and so forth. Right. And, but Iraq, what happened is, during the, uh, the last, let's say, 35 years, you had a, 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 an eight or maybe a nine-year war with Iran. They started in 1980. 
Now that war, Iraq and Iran share a long border. Figures again vary on the number of, of, of dead, but it's, it, you, you have to compare it to the same kind of warfare that you had in World War I, the First World War, in which you had this massive, you know, sort of almost like trench warfare kind of thing, the, the memories you have, it's exactly that kind of devastating thing. At least a million on both combinations of between Iraq and Iran have been lost into that war. A lot of Iraq's infrastructure was, was, was wiped out. Uh, that barely finished, Iraq went out and invaded Kuwait. And that followed by 14 years of one of the most cruel and incredibly bad, I mean, incredible sort of cruel sanctions that any country had ever witnessed. I mean, you know, we know Iran sanctioned, but people forget Iraq sanctions almost destroyed the country. So the option was whatever was not destroyed in wars, i.e. Mm -hmm. in, in the Iran-Iraq war, or in the first, uh, and then, I'm oh, sorry, and then you come into the 2003, whereby you had the U.S., let's say, takeover, invasion, liberation, and, you know, I'll leave it to people's interpretations, but whatever was not destroyed in wars, in terms of infrastructure, was destroyed in the years and during sort of like uh, no upkeep, no maintenance, no funds. So Iraq's whole infrastructure was completely wiped out. As soon as the U.S. came in, you had something like five year or what have you, a civil war that almost tore the country apart. Barely the country breathed in 2009, investment started coming in, the boom was 2012, ISIS came in. So again, you had all the story. So the Iraq story is not only all story, but also pretty much a story of typical uh, you know, post-conflict peace dividend. But in the case of Iraq, it's a peace dividend on sort of almost on steroids because you look at 35 years of conflict whereby everything was destroyed. Plus you have a country that can pay for it. You know, whichever oil prices are, the country can pay for it. And it's got a population that's hungry and, and, and demanding these things. So that's what I think. Finally, on, on if you're asking me, what is my view on oil prices? The way I look at energy and oil prices is very simple in a sense. People, for example, look at the, the, the battle between, let's say, OPEC and shale energy as actually between, between OPEC and shale, i.e. OPEC tried to destroy shale energy. I think that's actually, that's, that's a sideshow. The real thing that, that happened as a result of the, let's say, two-year uh, uh, price war and, and you know, oil prices went as low as, as 20 or what have you, was, if you look at it, what was the casualty? The casualty was um, CapEx spending on big oil infrastructure, i.e. the, the, uh, the deep sea oil, the, the, the oil of Brazil, the oil of, of, of Africa and, and the North Sea. These are projects that are, take years in development, years of capex. All of those canceled. I read a figure last year, according to McKinsey, something like $400 billion worth of projects that got canceled. Now, these things will come back when oil prices recover, but you're talking a 10-year capex cycle. And you need, you need money because in those days, you know, when people funded projects at all of $100 and money was cheap and, and all was high, it was an easy equation. Now, something like three or four million, million barrels a day of oil disappeared. Now, we have the talk of OPEC sort of like, you know, cutting production. And part of the worry is that, you know, you got uh, shale in, increasing its, its production. The thing is, whichever way you look at it, shale oil will increase, no doubt about it. And we'll, but what is going to be? It's going to be an extra million, million barrels a day max over the next two or three years. It's a small amount. Well, and when yet, I look at it, you've, you've also got, in, in, in any situation, you have um, 
we could call it inflation or deflation. Mm. So you can have a, a price inflating. As mm. a price inflates, you have more supply come on. I mean, this yeah. is it's 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 like the able, it's it's the you know the old saying that the cure for high prices is higher prices and the cure for low absolutely. prices low prices absolutely yeah so absolutely if you if you think through the oil spectrum we've had this period of time whereby supply has actually just been destroyed mm. in, in well I mean if you take um, uh, offshore sea drilling drilling companies oh, that's gone. looking at um, you know, these major, ma and what you've got to remember as well is that this is high capex. This isn't the Very kind of high capex. you can turn on the tap really quickly. It takes enormous amounts of capital. And so a lot of that has been sucked out of the system. And it's one of the things that we keep looking at in the fund and mm -hmm. our sectors. And, you know, it just stares you in the face is that Absolutely. you have this, these, these entire, that, that, um, the, the I don't want to come back on stream. They'll take a long time to come back on stream. They're going, to come, they're going to take a long time to come back on stream. And so even, you can actually even have a situation whereby demand um, could be falling marginally, but your supply has collapsed. Absolutely. And you can still have an increase in the price. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I made an analogy just the other day. Somebody was asking me a question about inflation and deflation. I said, well, hang on a second. Look at it like this. If you go back to Asian bird flu, I don't remember the Asian bird flu. Yeah. Now, in that scenario, I went and I did some research. And it was interesting because going into it, there was actually a supply deficit in terms of chickens, right? Mm -hmm. This was in, in mainland China and in Hong Kong in particular, which is the region most heavily hit. It was across Asia, but those are quite um, prevalent sectors to actually identify. So you had supply was actually contracting. At the same time, though, your demand just completely vaporized. I mean, nobody wanted to eat anything that remotely going to kill them. Yeah. And so, and then the producers, for their part, literally went out and just slaughtered everything. So mm -hmm. they really killed supply. And yet, prices still fell because demand completely vaporized. Yeah. All of this was taking place in an environment which could have been easily identified as an inflationary environment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not about inflation and deflation. Yeah. Just, you had this, these, these mechanisms which were actually pushing prices one way or the other. And so when I look at the uh, energy space in particular, and certainly oil, mm. you've had, you've, there's the supply that has just been contracting mm -hmm. in terms of all of the offshore drillers, in terms of any bit, like if you want to go out now and find new sources, like yeah. find no. who, who's out there actually looking for new resources. It's, and who will fund you, by the way? And who, who will give you the money? Where are you going to get that big, massive capex? Exactly. It's just not there. So, so from that perspective, I think it's a very interesting space. So how does that play into what you're doing? Well, how does that play into view on Iraq? Well, let me just add one more thing on that, is that you know, anybody who, who looks at Southeast Asia and, and looks at one of the main things happening, I mean, we certainly can see it in, in, in the other fund we have, you know, the, the Asia Frontier Fund, as you know, you, you know, Thomas. Now, one of the things, the thing is, there's is this whole idea of, of, of industrialization, i.e. people going, moving to the, from the farms to the villages, right? Now, what, what are they doing? What are people doing most of the time? You know, they're, they're moving into villages, from, from, from villages to the towns, they're working, they're buying, they're beginning to buy, not necessarily Western-style cars, but they're buying cars, you know, small cars, mopeds, all that kind of stuff. Now, 
what is the oil is what what, what is oil useful it's useful as a, as 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 transportation fuel now none of these populations will go in and buy all these wonderfully electrical cars that are going to hit demand for uh, for oil in, in the west they're going to be using all of this kind of thing i did a very basic exercise i mean a really very basic exercise i looked at the top 10 consumers of, of energy in the world and looked at how much they consume per capita so although we have places like india and china and Brazil, let's say, are huge in terms of overall consumption of oil. Per capita, they're nothing. Yeah. Right? And I said to myself, yeah. And I said to myself, okay, what if China and India begin to consume per capita the same as Brazil? Because and I, I figured, you know, keeping things simple, Brazil has got the same dynamics of incredible, you know, incredible small amount of wealth and incredible large amount of poverty. These countries have the same thing. Now, what you come up with is that China will probably consume three or four times what it is right now. India probably consumes two or three times what it is right now. And, but okay, that's not going to happen today. It's going to happen in you know, five, 10, 12 years time. But to me, that creates a continuous demand for energy. But having said that, the fact that you have shale oil coming in, it will act as a tax. So in my mind, I see oil prices long-term, 50 to $70 a barrel, i.e. they go low, you know, uh, uh, shale gets out of the picture and prices move up because too high shale comes up and so you, you'll have this wonderful balance going forward now for Iraq that's that's in a way is the best thing that can happen to Iraq because one of the diseases of um, uh, Iraq had let's say between 2003 and 20, 2012 or 2014 when ISIS came in was they followed the same model of the GCC i.e use oil wealth to hire people. Useless hiring of people. Iraq ends up by over 50% of the population is hired by that. Private industry never had a chance to take up, take off. The government is the whole player, i.e. through its agencies, through some through SOEs, i.e. state-owned enterprises, as well as banks. So the private sector didn't have a chance to grow, let alone rehabilitate from the old destruction of the last few years. Now with oil prices at current level, the government cannot maintain or cannot sustain it hiring people indiscriminately and just driving orders. You need the private sector. And this is the best thing that can happen to Iraq in a way if oil prices stabilize between $50 and $60 a barrel for the next few years because that's enough money coming into the country that you can pay your bills and what have you. You can pay the debt. Debt sustainability and all that is manageable under this scenario. Plus, it gives, you, it gives you all the incentives that you need to get the economy going. And the economy can grow in Iraq significantly because Iraq has got one of those wonderful things whereby it's, it's, it's you know, if anybody has invested in post-conflict, but also in, post, in, in, in pre-industrialization, because one of the things you end up, Iraq was almost as a semi-communist country, i.e. the old government of Iraq was a socialist regime. So it followed the Soviet Union of, you know, five-year plans, government owning this and that and so forth. One of the main things that we're missing in the front picture is a, a banking sector. It's a cash economy. Credit to the economy right now is about 7% of GDP. Nothing. Most businesses, most enterprises pretty much fund themselves through, you know, family and friends. Short-term consumer loans from Uncle Freddie down the road. Exactly. The only thing that has begun to take place with the stability in a place like, let's say, the Kurdish region is, let's say, 
lending uh, for cars, you know, auto loans and so forth. But you're talking small, tiny percentage. We, there's no such thing as lending to, let's say, for white goods and what have you. It's mm. because the banks, I mean, if you look at all, I mean, I look at the bank space, I look at, for example, and most of the money is that they, they work as more like, not like lending institutions because, you know, loan deposit ratio for the banks I follow in general are under 20%. Right. It's, it's, it's mostly on fees and what have you. So you don't have the multiplier effect that when dust come in, it will explode on the upside. And so what are, what are property rights like then? Because, I mean, that's kind of part of your banking sector is mm. all about collateral. And yeah. you, don't, you don't really have a, you can't have a proper credit system without a collateral system. And you can't mm. have a proper collateral system without a legal system that protects the collateral. So what yeah. does that look like at the moment? Well, Iraq is, is, is laws structure are very much sort of like mixed right now. On the one hand, you have the laws dating back from the Saddam era because they weren't all repealed. They were still effective. For example, it's very difficult for companies to go bankrupt because there's no mechanism for bankruptcy. Uh, to give an idea, even the most advanced of all the Arab uh, countries like uh, the UAE, only this year introduced bankruptcy laws. So the concept of bankruptcy exists. Um, you, you see companies, um, you know, so it's very difficult to have that. Um, now the collateral part is possible, but it's very difficult because, you know, it takes, it takes you know, you have to go through the court system, for example, to enforce your collateral, i.e. the selling of land, the selling of jewelry and what have you, relatively easy as there's nothing prevents it and so forth. Uh, with, 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 um, uh, with stock collateral, nothing prevents it. I mean, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a laborious process. That is not the thing stopping the country. It's not collateral. There is, every bank is amply collateralized. They are collateralized two to one at least. The issue is not the collateral because the, the, the way lending is done is, is done on a collateral basis. Well, you should do it on a combination of collateral as well as cash flow. Mm-hmm. You know, most of, you know, most of Iraq lending is not related to cash flow. There is, there is, one of the things that Iraq suffers from is um, an archaic accounting system and lack of skills, well, there are skills, but a lot of, let's say, modern skills that we know of. So you look at banks, and they lend mostly on collateral. Like, you know, what, I mean, one of the cases of banks I was looking at yesterday, uh, it, 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 it has to foreclose on, on certain collateral. Um, it's, the, the properties are roughly, you know, they're, they're, the properties are about worth $23 million or what have you, but they are collateralizing debt of only about 8 or $9 million dollars. Right, and for the last couple of years, the the the, uh, the borrowers couldn't pay back, so the the bank is taking on the the property, mm-hmm. but it's difficult to sell them because in this environment where, where cash is limited, so the bank, even though it's sitting on on assets that are worth twenty three or twenty two million dollars, but to pay debts of eight or nine million dollars, it puts them on his on his books, but it takes forever for them to get them back. So it comes back. There's a liquidity premium then that would be assigned to any um, any loan agreement, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the, the cash flow side of things. So what you've got to keep in mind that Iraq's economy was dead for the last couple of years because, as I mentioned, because the government is a primary force of uh, the economy, is a driver of the economy in terms of employing people also on its contract. Because of the, the ISIS uh, situation from 2014 till now and the collapse of oil prices, what you have is your income pretty much 
became a quarter of a third of what it was, and yet your expenses went through the roof. So what did the government do in the last couple of years? Very simple. Uh, it cuts back on salary payments. It pays them late, you know, a month or two or so, what have you. Introduces mandatory savings. So that that hits con uh, uh, consumer spending, and it stops all contracts. Now, when you stop all contracts, basically you don't pay your contractors. And who are the contractors? They are the guys who are borrowing from banks, so they can't pay back their banks. So Iraq has got this this this, this complete crunch in liquidity. To give an idea, I mean, one of the things I'm really bullish about, I'd say, very short term, is because of that, Iraq's non-oil spending collapsed by 50% in 2015, year over year. It collapsed by 68% in 2016. In 2016. The upshot of it is not all GDP contracted by 14% in 2015 and by 5% in 2016. So you're looking at a massive chunk. And with it, during that time period, the stock market sort of crashed something like 68%. But this year, because one, your spending, you know, the, the, the inequality between spending and income is, 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 is balancing out. All prices are not 27, they are, you know, 50 plus. That's one. Second, your military spending is even though high right now for, uh, uh, for the battle of the Brit Mosul, but it's going to be coming down. So the upshot of it is your non-all GDP would almost double this year or triple this year. Okay, and so with it, non-all GDP will grow by, you know, 3%. Let me jump in there because you mentioned that you've had this contraction. I get all of that. And government mm -hmm. spending, they're basically retrenched. And they said, hang on a second, we, we've got to protect our core. Their mm -hmm. core is mostly energy focused and the, uh, the production of wealth yeah. and so forth. So the contract, they've, they've pulled everything back in terms of, um, you know, government employees to protect the core. Mm -hmm. Where has additional capital, where have they been spending money? And I, sus I suspect that they've been spending it on military because they've, they've got to pr try and protect. It's like you're going into, you're going into your cave, right? <laughs> and you're protecting, yeah. so you get your guns out and you bolster up. It's, it's, it's a very expensive one. Very expensive. So they've been spending a lot of, on um, military and, and the various battles that they've been um, fighting. Also, by the way, you have displacement of, of almost 10% of the population because of the invasion of ISIS. So you got, you know, in turn displaced people are roughly about 10% of the population. We talk about 3 million people are in turn displaced. That is diversion of resources from the real economy into, you know, uh, people who need aid and what have you. Sure, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's it doubling up all the, the expenses and, and the income. It's like the perfect storm, essentially. Absolutely. So, so what, is, what does that look like now? I, from the, you know, minimal reading that I've done in the space, <clears throat> the the battle for Mosul Mosul has been uh, mostly won now. It seems yeah. that there's a bit more stability. So mm -hmm. as a consequence, that military spending is that being contracted back again, and, and there's money that can now be deployed into um, uh, you know, employing into more people in the government sector. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Well, the thing is, the military spending hasn't come down yet, but its outlook is going to come down as a percentage and overall because with, with, with the liberation of Mosul, which is, let's say, it's a question of time, you don't have that heightened year-over-year -year increase in military spending. That's one. It's going to be stabilized and probably sort of flattened over, over the year, what have you. But your income as a, a country is up because of the recovery in oil prices, 
plus all the aid that Iraq is getting. You're talking about the IMF, you know, the standby agreement of $5.4 billion, Iraq raising money from via uh, uh, bond sales, the various aids are coming in from various countries and so forth. All of that. Overall, we're not talking, let's say, huge amounts in terms of billions and billions of dollars, but it's enough to get the non-oil sector to recover. Now, the government can't hire more people because it can't hire. It, it needs to contract that number. So it needs to depend on the private sector. And it needs to encourage the private sector, which is doing. But the thing is that liquidity in the country stopped getting worse in the summer of last year and started improving gradually as, as, as time goes by. It's still scarce, but it's, it's, it's between, sort of, let's say, day and night when I compare, let's say, February this year and February of last year. Okay, so how cheap is it then? Because, I mean, you've got a situation where it's been flattened, quite mm. literally yeah. and figuratively. You've had a contraction, firstly, at energy, which prices which went down from 100, you know, even at 50, 100 to 50. Still, significant still a lot. Um, lot. And, of course, there's been the military conflict, and you've, so, you know, while that looks far better today than it did you know, 12, 18 months ago. Um, how cheap is it actually? Because you, you're, you're clearly, clearly still taking risks. Um, you're taking huge risks. But are you, yeah, so essentially, are you being compensated for those risks? Because like you mentioned the IMF. And one of the things that I grew up in Africa, and it's almost like the curse of resources, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, these countries which are enormously endowed with resources, you have one or two politicians that get in and mm-hmm. see power and they, and they literally just feed their Swiss bank accounts. Absolutely. And um, when, the, when the bailouts come, um, there's a tiny fraction of that that actually trickles through into the economy. So it's very difficult to actually play um, what would be termed charity in my mind. Uh, yeah. And you need to have the collateral being created by the private sector. So that's one thing I'd like you to just kind of address the, is, is the private sector going to have some capabilities to actually grow? Because then you're going to get some consumer growth. You're going to get some consumer spending. Um, but what, what does it look like price-wise? I mean, how cheap is it? Well, the thing is, it's difficult to give you a sense of, for example, uh, a proper sort of like valuation of the, of, of the market because the market is is a mixture. I mean, you have two telecom companies accounting for 68% of, uh, of, of the country, uh, of the market cap, uh, of, the, of, of, of you know, the whole market cap. So I don't look at it that way, but let's give you the banks, which are actually the easiest thing uh, to look at. Now, the, keep in mind, these banks are not operating as proper banks. So if you look at their multiples of, and I look at, let's say, a select 10 of let's say between good and, 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 and not so good, but like the 10, let's say most investable banks in the country. These, even after now rising something like between 30 and 40% over the between summer and now, on average, they try, trade at, on, on, on a price to book of 0.6. Okay. Now, keep in mind, the word bank, that's the only word it shares with, with Western banks. People say Western banks trade at these levels, but Western banks are extremely well developed and their books are very complex and therefore 0.6 or 0.7 times might be expensive. Iraq banks are very simple. They, there's nothing in their balance sheet that is, is ever so you know, complex. But the whole thing is because their loan deposit ratio, you're looking at under 20% for these groups of banks. So they're 
their their book is oh and a lot of them when they pay dividend they pay something like 70% of their you know yearly profit goes into paying dividends so we're looking at book value is extremely extremely undervalued so at that undervalued you know book value you're looking at a low multiple of 0.6 okay these should be easily one and a half times given the fact that you are looking you know if you go back to western banks go to 2000 you know the big big growth in banks you know and don't look at them right now because none of these banks iraq is is you know banking uh, less than 20% of the population uses bank accounts as i mentioned i, I yeah. didn't mention that but less than 20% use bank accounts it's, it's mostly a cash, cash economy, economy. Right. it's a cash economy so you don't have the multiplier effect banks uh, balance sheets or uh, uh, have not expanded accordingly. They are tiny of what they should be. You know, credit to the private sector, we're saying 7% of GDP. That's, that's nothing. That's almost like zero. In the region, you're looking at figures of 50% plus at least. So there's enormous room for the, for, uh, the book value of these banks itself to grow as banking usage takes place. So what do you see as a And then you look at multiple... Well, I think the catalyst in Iraq has already happened. I mean, the, 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 the biggest catalyst, uh, I mean, you know, let me add something else as well to, to the trauma of last year. Now, Iraq had very few foreign inflows, uh, uh, you know, compared to other markets. It had some influence in 2012, 2013, 2014, meaningful ones. They account for maybe up to 20% of, uh, of the market. Right now, foreign funds account for something like $100 million worth of a market cap that is probably, if I look at adjusted to, uh, I mean, market cap in Iraq officially is $12 billion, but because one... Uh, there was a technical listing of, of a telecom company. Um, so if you take away, let's say, $4 billion, you're looking at, at uh, let's say, you know, simply $7.5 billion real market cap. Now, $200 million of that is, is uh, roughly $100 million owned by foreigners. But what happened last year was two unrelated events that completely you know, added it because you had the locals were selling because you know, they, there was a case of forced selling. You had no option but to sell. If you don't, if as a contractor, you don't get paid. As an individual, you don't go play in the market. Very, you know, anybody who, 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 who's been in the retail markets knows that. That was one. Two, one was a, a, a foreign fund with roughly something like $10 million under management by January of last year. That one fund liquidated over a period of four months. The liquidation, in a way, from what I understand, had nothing to do with Iraq, but to do with the coming in of new, new management who decided, well, we don't want to be an X and Y country. But it doesn't matter. That's $8, 10000000 million sort of like disappeared from Iraq. But you're talking small figures, but a market that does a million dollars a day, you know, $10 million being sold over you know, a few months is a lot. Mm-hmm. Plus, it was also HSBC, which owned one of Iraq's banks, owned something like 50% of a bank. Part of its regional retrenchment, where it pulled back of a number of countries, it started to pull back of Iraq. So it dumped it that bank as well. So what you had is multiple things feeding into the market. Long, long, long story short, between the peak in 2014 and the multi-year bottom in May of 2016, the market was down 68%, of which almost 30% of that was in the first five months of the year, of last year. Now, when these forces go away, you've seen the thing in, in, in frontier market when these are like force selling disappears, the market sort of stabilizes and sort of like picks up a little bit. That's what happened in Iraq. Mm. But the real catalyst started place with the effective battle to liberate Mosul. In October, the market started picking up. 
and picking up aggressively, the bank started moving. On average, let's say from October onwards, the market gained something like 8% a month. And so really that was the catalyst that drives it. Like, as you can see, we're at the end of conflict. And, and where's that capital coming from? Is there, is there FDI coming in from particular countries? Who's investing? F- I mean, we know that- FDI hasn't come much. SDI haven't come much. We were, for example, to give an idea, I mean, and, and, and not so question of bragging, but for example, we were the only fund launched in, uh, in, in, in 2015. And until, let's say, late summer, we were the only ones who were getting money. But from what I understand from my competitors that they started seeing inflows for the first time in a couple, you know, in a couple of years, you know, bit here, bit there, and so forth. Um, we haven't seen much foreign inflow yet. I mean, we took, whatever we're seeing is a fraction of what was there. It's mostly a case of local liquidity improving. Right. With local liquidity improving. It starts uh, domestic you know, and, then, and then that starts driving foreign capital in. Ab- absolutely. That, that's and the way it any, goes. Are there any, so like if I take a, let's make an analogy. You look at a place like, um, you know, Vietnam where you guys have, where yeah. your country has done pretty well. And um, even the Philippines or mm. any of those regions there, you've often got regional players that have got a vested interest in those, whether it be South Korea, whether it be Japanese money, mm. and so on and so forth, um, and and you see those those almost geopolitical shifts taking place, mm-hmm. where you have strategic investments being made. Is there anything of that nature in the region? So I, I just kind of briefly mentioned Turkey. Obviously, Erdogan is um, uh, fairly aggressively um, bolstering his own presidency. And, you know, there, there is, you know, talk of him pushing south. Um, are there any regional players that are basically using Iraq as a geopolitical tool for, and, and, and investments, you know, into the country to actually, um, uh, sure. you know, make a, make a geopolitical play? Well, I thought it's almost everybody you can think of is there. I mean, in the sense of U.S. companies, for example, because of Iraq's, you know, look at Iraq's size. It's a, it's a large country. Uh, it's, you're looking at, uh, it's, it's the second largest OPEC exporter right now. Um, it's got, I mean, right now, Iraq has officially the fifth largest reserves in the world, or like 9% of world reserves in oil. But unofficially, according to data sources, has another 5 or 6%. So it could have as much oil as Saudi Arabia, in theory. Uh, almost everybody's involved in Iraq. So we're looking at Chinese companies, for example, uh, probably spend something like $2 billion a year in Iraq. Even, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting a figure here that I'm going to quote you right now. In 2015, so it's 2015, figure given by Moody's on foreign inflows. It says net foreign direct inflows declined by 30% to $3.2 billion. That's, that's declined by 30%. It says um, net uh, investment outflows something like $8.5 billion. So these figures sort of were, were being sucked out. But what we're looking at, I mean, okay, there's too early to have figures for 2016, let alone 2017. But from what I'm seeing is a lot of companies are winning massive contracts. Give an idea. GE, turbines. Because one of the things that was destroyed in Iraq was, was its, its, its energy infrastructure or its power infrastructure. So Iraq is chronically short of power. Chronically short. I mean, it... it it has less than a third of right electricity demand. And that's demand today, not demand 
driven by a, a, an economy that, for example, is growing. Right. You know how it is yeah. when, when we are growing and using phones and charging them, sure. our demand. So and back, back, back to supply destruction. <laughs> exactly. So you have that. Iran, for example, is one of the biggest players in Iraq infrastructure because basically Iran supplies Iraq with gas and supplies Iraq with, with energy. So it's, it's spending tons of money on that. Almost every other uh, industry is affected. You're looking at just rebuilding Iraq's roads. You're talking billions of dollars. Uh, Iraq's roads and you're looking at, let's say, rebuilding uh, after ISIS. That by itself is a few billion dollars. Almost any industry, any industry you can think of where there's big capex involved is playing in Iraq. It needs to play in Iraq because it's a sizable market. Mm-hmm. You know, all the big players are there. And eventually you'll see a lot of that take place because it is, it's a relatively an easy kind of business. I mean, you know, w- one thing that people don't realize, for instance, is let's say Iran. Iran, people don't know much about Iran, but one of the things about Iran is that Iran is the, uh, probably I think, what, what's the right phrase? It's probably like the third or fourth largest cement exporter in the world, if not third. Almost 60% of its exports go to Iraq. So for Iran right now, because the Iraq government has put in, let's say, conditions on, on put in uh, fines and stuff because it wants to encourage local industry. So Iran is looking at encouraging its companies to invest big time in Iraq to produce cement in Iraq as opposed to elsewhere. Uh, Lafarge in France has got a major player in Iraq. And that's something that's an energy production. You're talking massive projects are taking place. For example, one of the biggest projects took place last year is the IFC, which is the International Financial Corporation. It invested something like $375 million in a power plant in Iraq. And it invites the foreign bank to put in $125 million. So they put $250, one bank, a Lebanese bank. And that's basically to upgrade two uh, power stations to, to go into gas-fired power stations. So you've got a lot of that going to feed up on itself. With stability, all that comes back in. Let, and that's on top of the money that's spent to upgrade Iraq's oil infrastructure. Because even though Iraq, for example, right now, is the uh, second largest OPEC producer and producing sort of by, 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 by leaps and bounds, it's got huge uh, bottlenecks in the sense that Iraq's pipelines are still the old pipelines that you had from the 70s and so forth. So they leak. There's a huge amount of um, uh, desire, need for storage because one of the things that you'll, you know, whenever you see Iraq's oil production is like, you know, is off for a few weeks is because you have, let's say, uh, bad weather because the storage facilities are only, you know, they all store oil for a few days. Plus, you need to spend massive amounts of, uh, of, uh, of money to make sure that the current oil production maintains itself by, you need f- uh, water injection into them. So there's a lot of stuff going on, almost like, it's almost like you're picking up a book and saying, what is there not being done in Iraq? It's almost like anything that's being done can happen there. But what was missing was stability and Iraq being able to pay for it. I got a question, and this is from, you know, having grown up in Africa and having looked at a number of different frontier countries. What is, you know, obviously through any conflict period, you have a lot of diaspora. Is there a reverse diaspora taking place? Because that can often indicate, you know, because your people on the ground, they know better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So when your brother or your sister or your auntie or uncle say, look, it's getting better, you've got to come back, all that kind of stuff, you start seeing those sorts of trends taking place. And that's often one of the first precursors, if you will, Absolutely. to real stable sort of um, growth. 
Are you seeing any of that taking place? Well, right now, you're seeing very little of it. But what happened is, let's say when Iraq was stabilized, let's say when, when, when the civil war sort of almost came to an end and Iraq was becoming stable, between 2009 and 2012, you had a lot of that come back. You saw, for example, the Kurdish region of Iraq, which is the most stable region. So massive amounts of Kurds who actually lived and settled in Europe were coming back to, uh, to Kurdistan to take part in it. Now, a lot of that reversed when ISIS came in. A lot of that left the country. But right now, from what I see, is that there is, you know, with, because stability is, is, is the main thing, is what drives people. Right. I mean, you know, look at me as an, as an Iraqi who spent all his life outside Iraq, as an Iraqi whose work was outside Iraq. I'm putting everything I have into going back into Iraq. Now, I'm not unique. There are a lot of others there. But what was needed was stability and a functioning political system. Iraq hasn't got a functioning political system, but it stopped having a dysfunctional one. Well, when we look around the world, it's difficult to find a place that actually has a functioning political system. <laughs> <laughs> but but Iraq, had, Iraq had a system that wasn't mean. working. It sure. had, wasn't working because basically you, the, there was a whole sectarian conflict whereby you had Sunnis, Shiites, and Kurds. But because none of them had that huge majority or enough to enact change, Iraq was a standstill. Over the last year or so, a lot of the sectarian alliances were falling apart. And it's beginning, I mean, okay, it's way too early to be probably optimistic about it, but I am, you know, I'm a kind of person who looks at the glass half full. What I'm seeing is beginning of cross-secretarian alliances. And that's crucial for the future of Iraq because that breaks the deadlock or the gridlock of not being able to pass something. Yeah. It is taking place. Well, it'll take a long time. But the fact that we have the IMF on, 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 on that side, because the IMF is not releasing money until it sees effective change on the ground, that in a way has been a blessing for Iraq because finally they are taking the right steps in actually engaging the private economy and doing a bit of protectionism in the sense of helping local industry because Iraq imports everything. So a lot of we have local industry that does fairly well, it can't compete with, with, with foreign. So that's beginning to take place. And... You know, it's, it's enough to say that really what drives markets is not so much actually you don't need to have a complete Goldilocks scenario. All you need is rate of change. Well, look, I mean, it's, it's like my friend Mark Yusko often says, things don't need to get better. They just need to go from terrible to less worse, Absolutely. less bad. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can get multiples on your money in, that, in such a scenario. So Exactly, exactly. Works. And finally, I would add Iraq, you know, with all the risk Iraq has, Everything I've seen so far, I mean, you're one of very few people who can, for example, see more than just the risk. What I always saw in Iraq is that the risk in Iraq is high. I mean, Iraq's risk is very high, even now. But the perceived risk is substantially higher than the real risk. So you have quite a, a, a delta to be arbitraged away. Mm -hmm. now, that delta was widest last year. This year, it's less than last year because the market is no longer tanking. And I find out always the best time to buy in frontier markets and when people are desperate because you can buy, okay, you might not make your money you know, tomorrow, sure. but you know you're buying assets at dirt cheap prices. When they bounce, they just bounce. Yeah, very but good. But still the opportunity is there right now. 
Well, it's been a fascinating conversation, Ahmed. Thank I, you. I appreciate your time, really by the way. And, and I time. know I, I sometimes go, go overboard because <laughs> I love this story. And, and, and uh, you know, it, it deserves to be heard because it really is. I mean, to, to cap it all up, by the way, there's nothing that we are doing, or especially I'm doing, that's actually rocket science or anything. That's, I'm not inventing anything. All I'm doing is, in a sense, I'm almost like using a time machine, going back in time, to invest in the market before it goes up because nothing Iraq is seeing that has not happened in any other post-conflict. Like everywhere you went, if you look at Russia, for example, between 19, Russia, uh, uh, let's say, dropped or ended communism in 1990. It had 10 years of disaster whereby they had the IMF program, but at the time it was a shock program of, you know, sell everything and da-da-da. I remember. In, 19, in 1999, it went to a default and started new. If you look at what the stock market did, it went up by almost 2,000% until 2009. Now, that's a stock market or an index. In reality, nobody makes that kind of money. But a lot of funds that launched, they saw 10, 20, 30 times their money. And what was the driver? Money was coming in from oil production. Stability was finally happening. Banks were lending. And that's it. That's all, I mean, that's all what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing. And that's why I'm excited about it because it's actually so simple. Well, it's, it's, it's actually quite, it's, quite it's the beautiful. simplest stuff, which is actually the easiest. It's a little bit like having a plant grow. All you need is sunshine and water. And patience. And patience. And, and if you get on that trend and you get in you know, relatively early where you've got sufficient um, risk minimization so you don't bet the farm, yeah. you, can, you can do exceptionally well as, mm-hmm. as those trends manifest themselves. And you, know, you make a really good point with respect to Russia because at, at the time, nobody would have... Uh, you know, even going back a couple of years ago, I remember looking at it and I was having a chat with a, uh, a buddy of mine who runs a hedge fund out of New York. And I was saying, well, hang on a second. You've got this country. It is freely floated currency. Mm-hmm. And remember, they let their currency go. Yeah. But they took the pain, right? When, when oil collapsed, they could have actually tried to, um, you know, use mm-hmm. central bank reserves because they, uh, you know, they had enough of them. Yeah. They didn't. They went, no, nah, we're just going to, and they let the currency go. They took the pain. And now we sit, you know, a few years later and look what's been happening. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just kind of almost like a minor little, you know, um, blip in terms of the cyclical nature of what's going on there. But I think it's quite interesting to look at just from a, almost like a, you know, you, what you've got. When I look at the stock market, it's the laboratory. Right? And we've got a whole lot of lab rats. <laughs> some of those lab rats are going to die, right? And some of them are going to be resistant and they're going to come out and they're going to be terminator lab rats. And if you, can, if you can get a, you know, one or two of those um, and position size accordingly, um, it can be extremely profitable. So um, I think that's, um, that's probably where Iraq fits into this picture as well. Exactly. The only difference between the analogy that you're saying is that, you know, the, 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 the story, let's say, in making money in Russia two years ago was a short-term opportunity because as it, as it recovers, simply because Russia is well-known. But the same Russia story in 1999 had multiple legs because it's, it's the same thing as two or three years ago, plus the structural changes were just happening. Right. This is Iraq. Iraq has multi-year structural changes taking place in, in, in that cycle. And you had the opportunity of the last couple of years. So that's why 
you know, it's just what I'm saying. It's like it's going back to a time machine because, you know, if you get into it now, you know, the biggest money, for example, was to be made last year. This year, I say, you know, I can see the market doing incredibly well. I'm not going to say sort of how much I can see, but I see the risk, for example, it's just a very simple sense. You know, market was up something like 15% in January. I expected the market to, to go down like 5 6% in, 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 in Feb. It's all gone down just like barely 2%. The market's going sideways, but barely 2%. I mean, I think the risk is bigger on the upside. But the thing is, because it's a multi-year phenomenon, you can buy it later this year, you can buy it next year, you can buy it the year after, because these structural changes take time to play out. Sure. And depending on how, you know, how your risk appetite is, that's when you come in. I think actually the, the easiest one is now, because last year required you know, a trust that things would turn around, because you, last year you were buying when the market was crashing. Right. Now you see the worst behind you, and you see the market beginning a recovery. And it's only recovered 30% of its crash. And you can see things are improving. So it's an easier thing. Okay, less return than, than last year. In two or three years' time, it will take place, but still will not be fully developed. So it depends on people's risk appetite. I mean, I would personally say, put a chunk in right now, depending on your appetite. And if you feel more comfortable, put more next year or wait out. Very good. No, it's, but um, I it's end a, up right now. Thank you very much for, for that. <laughs> very good. Well, I, I better let you go. It's yeah. your evening over there and I've got my day yeah. to start here. So um, appreciate your time. And until we next speak, take care and best of luck. Same here. Very, thank you very much. Wonderful opportunity to talk to you and, and to meet up and, and to read your stuff because now I put myself on your email uh, list. So I get to read you know, every now and then a few interesting things. <laughs> very good. <laughs> I'm glad to have okay. you as a subscriber. <laughs> Well, okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.